Amanda is tired because I am an asshole and an idiot. Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading, Victoria. Would you like to tell the audience what time it is? So it is 8 o'clock at night. We were going to record at 7. I'm the dumb shooter left my phone upstairs. And then when my uh, daughter's bio mom came to pick her up, talked for an hour and went, wait, I wonder what time it is. Sorry, I sat in 410 traffic at 6 o'clock to get home on time. I did this for you. Person. I'm a horrible person. I'm You're sorry. not a horrible person. Hello to bio mom and to uh, fishy. Um, so we're here to cover the haunting of Hill House because it is Halloween, and uh, I'm going to be out of the country in a couple of days. So, do you want to tell folks about your text message exchange with your family today? <laughs> okay. I love my aunts. I love my aunts very much. You might not infer that from all the horrible things I've said about them. <laughs> but uh, today I get a text message. Uh, Amanda, I've been doing some research with like the all teeth, like anxious emoji. And it's like, okay, excellent message to send your anxiety riddled, traumatized child. Excellent. And then my aunt decided that she just wants to send me like every uh, screenshot of everything she's ever discovered about Japan in the last checks notes, 30 minutes, including asking me to bring activated charcoal, which spoiler, I take a lot of medication. I can't take activated charcoal. You should not be taking activated charcoal unless you've been poisoned or you've overdosed or you're a house plant. The average person does not need activated charcoal. We do not need to detox. We have a liver. Also, a fair warning, this is the yes. time of year that people put that stuff in drinks to make them yes. black. It will yes. hurt your hormone or birth control. So It will fuck up your birth control. It'll fuck up your St. John's wort. It'll fuck up anything that you're taking. Ask people if there's activated charcoal in this shit. Sidebar, there was a very, very funny TikTok where someone got this like black and uh, orange spaghetti and I was like, that's squid ink. And the guy's like, I'm a vegan and I'm an idiot. It's like, yeah, you are an idiot. Correct. You are an idiot. Because I looked at that immediately. I was like, squid ink. Even in Animal Crossing, you can make squid ink pasta. Like, there was no, because like, oh, charcoal makes things black. Yeah, you wouldn't put charcoal in pasta. Like, it would never form a dough. Because you're not supposed to ingest charcoal. Too many sidebars. Baron Von Cheeseplate's going to get mad at me. Uh, so we're talking about The Haunting of Hill House because Tori has decided that she wanted to read a scary book. And now it's 8 o'clock and we have to do this. And I have a suitcase that is almost as tall as I am on my bed right now. I bought a 30-inch suitcase. I am only 50-something inches. I'm trying to like mentally figure picture that. Yeah, I'm only like 50-something inches. This is a 30-inch suitcase. Are you going to be able to carry this around Japan? That's what men are for. That's why there's men. Every woman is a feminist until she has to read something on a top shelf. What are you talking about? You just throw paper towels at paper that's towels. True. They I come just, down. I just throw, that's true. I'm, I'm a bad example. I just throw shit. I line up the shot. 
like I have, like I have an Adeladdle. I just line up the shot. And just <laughs> to be fair, every smaller woman I have known has learned how to climb shelves and is feral, and it makes me so happy. Yeah, don't fuck. If you are dating a woman under five four, do not. She has been plotting your death for weeks. She knows how to kill you in so many different ways. And has friends who will help her get rid of the body. Tori, why are you dressed like uh, Sam Winchester? I was going to say like like my uh, lesbian counterpart. Yeah, Because it like, was why cold. You, like, why are you dressed like one of the Winchesters? I wish. Get a one of the tattoos like right on my chest. I would then I'd have to explain that in South Texas. We're not doing that. I, no, I would just stop being your friend. I'm sorry. Like, there's a lot of... I always say I'm not judgmental when it comes to tattoos, which is a lie. I'm very judgmental. I'm just not judgmental to that person. I was like, I don't have any tattoos because my mom always threatens to take well, them off. I'm not like, okay. So, okay. I'm sorry, Barrett Von Cheeseplate. Sidebar, sidebar. I am not judgmental of getting tattoos. Like, I'm not that Catholic. If you want to get a tattoo, be free. However, just because something has meaning to you, does not mean that it has meaning to everyone else. Which means that some people are going to think your tattoo looks dumb as hell. <laughs> and as long as you have prepared for that. That's all I'm going to say. Because my former best friend got this huge tattoo. That means the world to him. Everyone else is like, that's a stupid tattoo. But it just, it, it's so deep to him. It means so much to him. And it's like, that's a stupid tattoo. Uh, we are eating and drinking. I'm drinking water because it's 8 o'clock at night. Because it's 8 o'clock at fucking night. So I'm going to short story long and I'm going to try and do this as quickly as possible. If you've watched The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, you have not read this book. They do a completely different adaptation where they borrow things. Just like However, if you've seen the movie from the 60s, The Haunting, or... The haunting that had like Catherine Zeta Jones, you're a little bit closer. A little bit closer. If you watch The Haunting mm -hmm. and really enjoyed Catherine Zeta Jones, uh, how's your mommy kink uh, bisexuality going? That's hilarious because of things implied in this book. Okay. So there's a spooky mansion. It's called Hill House. I know. Uh, it's still technically livable, but no one wants to be there except this guy who is an investigator of the supernatural named Dr. John Montague. Now, he has a bunch of like real degrees because he's trying to cover up the fact that this is what he's passionate about because he doesn't get taken seriously for it. So he's mm -hmm. like, I'm going to prove that hauntings are valuable investigative work. So he rents out Hill House, invites people who have experienced the paranormal to come and stay in the house. And this is where he hits his first roadblock because one, most people don't respond. Two, a lot of people have moved. And three, a lot of people have died. And this is the age before... Uh, email and you know google so only two women answer his response which already is problematic right um they're going to be in a house by themselves with this doctor already already difficult kind of something that even in those times would probably not match your research standards but whatever eleanor vance is one of the women and she has spent the last 10 years taking care of her awful mother um now that her mother has died, she's been living with her terrible sister and her sister's husband. And they're awful. They won't let her use the car that she's helped pay for. All sorts of stuff. Um, 
the other is Theodora, also known as Theo, who is a bohemian artist, and it is implied heavily throughout the book that she's a lesbian. Uh, the one caveat to Montague being able to rent Hill House is that one of the heirs of Hill House must stay with them, and that is a guy named Luke Sanderson, who I think was played by Owen Wilson in the movie. I haven't watched the movie in years. Okay. <laughs> the house is taken Not Owen over. Wilson. All the Wilsons. I just want him to go, wow. Um, so anyway, the house is currently being taken care of by Mr. and Mrs. Dudley, both who refuse to be at the house after dark. Mrs. Dudley, I think, is my favorite character in this whole book because she just follows people around, giving them the same speech, saying, basically, it boils down to, I'm not your fucking maid. I will not be here when the sun goes down. I will leave you food, and then I will clear it away in the morning. That's it. Take care of your own shit. Um, they end up going to have drinks in this like kind of library parlor thing that night. And Dr. Montague explains the history of the house, including a bunch of violent deaths and a suicide. And keep in mind, this is like two sisters who fought over the house, um, supposedly a nun that was buried alive for having sex with a priest, like all sorts of really fucked up stuff. Um, the four eventually start to hear strange noises. They see writing and blood on the walls, which is never a good thing and all sorts of other weird stuff. Um, Eleanor seems to be the only one picking up on some weird phenomena and some really bad vibes. Everyone else is just kind of visually or hearing things at the same time. The problem is Eleanor is also starting to lose connection to reality. So she may be seeing things that are there or might just be her imagination. Uh, the book implies that she has telekinetic ability and may be causing a lot of the phenomena on her own, which if you are really big into poltergeist studies, that is fairly common. It's believed that uh, teenagers and young women who are in um, heightened states of emotion can sometimes trigger poltergeist activity. And young men too. It's just considered to be more common with young women. Um, so it's fascinating with the whole concept of her having to take care of her mom for the past 10 years, that like delayed childhood. Anyway, moving on. Things start to go to absolute shit when Dr. Montague's wife rolls up. Um, mm -hmm. She's overly confident in her psychic abilities note she has none and she's accompanied by arthur parker who's a friend of hers and is a headmaster at a boys school um they are the only two people in this book who experience nothing mm -hmm. but they're but mrs montague talks a big game um a lot of the supernatural phenomena in this book is implied um they don't really go into detail of what things are being seen other than oh you know we saw somebody's name written in blood um Eleanor and Theodora end up sharing a room after enough weird stuff happens to them and Theo's clothes get destroyed. A strange force had, tries to get into the room in the middle of the night and Eleanor freaks out because she thinks that she's holding Theo's hand from across the bed, like their beds are next to each other. She thinks she's holding Theo's hand and then realizes it's not Theo's hand and they don't know whose it is. Um, they end up going outside for a walk one night and they see a ghostly family picnic, which doesn't get described of what they actually see. All we know is that Theo screams for Eleanor to run, but we don't get the full description of what they're running from. Okay, hold um, on. But a ghostly family picnic just sounds, like, very chill. I mean, you would hope so. Like, that just sounds like a very, like, chill... I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I said at work today that my end goal is to haunt a Victorian mansion. I mean, I feel like that's a good end goal. Uh, so I might not be, you know, the, the correct... As long oh, as your goal isn't, like, your end goal isn't to haunt an olive garden. Okay. Listen. 
Will Unlimited build... breadsticks do nothing for you if you're dead. But, 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 will they build an effigy of me? Will I be like Ball? And they'll have like a statue of me like in the corner of the Olive Garden that they sacrifice like Andy's mints and breadsticks to. My That's God. my question. <laughs> will I be, hold on, because you, you, will I be worshipped as a demigod of this Olive Garden? I mean, that's between it, you and the Olive Garden manager. <laughs> Me just in the back, Steve. Okay. So something is starting to possess Eleanor, whether that's her own mental issues or if it's actually something from the house. Dr. Montague and Luke tell her she needs to leave after she's found climbing an unsafe metal spiral staircase. Are there uh, safe she, are there safe spiral metal staircases? You know, if they're actually attached to the, the wall entirely and not... Like, okay, I'm like, hold on. Because you've implied now that they're safe of those, and I don't think that that's true. <clears throat> so, she resists their attempts to get rid of her. She claims the house wants her to stay, like, very adamantly. So, they basically force her into her car that she stole from her sister. She owns part of it. Anyway, but... She drives off as she propels her car into a large oak tree on the property, and it's implied she commits suicide. And then Dr. Montague ends up in disgrace. And that's the book. Cool, 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 cool. So if you're like, wow, Netflix was way more interesting. You'd be correct. All right. I got called out last time for not having themes and symbols. You did great. I'm very proud of you. You have some themes I, and symbols. I'm so proud of myself. I'm proud so of you, too. So one of the things we see over and over and over again in Shirley Jackson's work, and this is stuff you see in her other books as well, um, We've Always Lived in the Castle, which is so good. Um, I, I, after I was like, let's do Haunting of Hill House. I'm like, there's like eight other things that I could have picked. Anyway, so overwhelming relatives. She had a really, really bad relationship with her mother. Her mom was an asshole, which I'll explain a little bit later. So you'll see a lot of relatives in her books be just completely overwhelming unnecessarily. Um, you'll also see her do the same thing with being completely misunderstood by the uh, the neighbors or people in the town and being very set apart. Um, that's mm -hmm. really common in Shirley Jackson's work. Okay. So... I love this because it kind of reminds me, and I'm not trying to give this book too much credit. It does give me like beloved vibes where like the real ghost is like families being kind of crappy and toxic. Um, because I relate to that, having a crappy family. <laughs> uh, sometimes the haunting is familial pressure. I remember um, I saw Welcome to Night Vale live and it was the ghost stories circuit, if you ever saw that one. And basically it's talking about, you know, in Night Vale, cause okay, I realize I have to explain Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale is like NPR in the Twilight Zone. There's it's one host. Fabulous. It's fabulous. It used to be magical. Now they're, <laughs> they're a little too woke and it's that Aaron Mankey thing of like, they had a Trayvon Martin allegory uh, dragon and you don't need to have a Trayvon Martin allegory dragon. 
They had a tra they had a Trayvon Martin like George Floyd dragon, and you didn't need to do that. Who is that for? I listened to the first two years of it. I haven't yeah. listened in a while. Yeah, they lost me at the Trayvon Martin dragon. Um, but you know, it's basically like if NPR was in the Twilight Zone. It's a weird, surreal town. Uh, I don't have time to explain Nightdale, but it was Cecil, the main character. Uh, talking about these, you know, ghosts and hauntings in Night Vale, and it's on the surface just this, like, spooky thing happening in Dark Spooky Town. But he overlays it with talking about his mom dying of cancer. And he said a line that said, the real ghosts are the things that the dead leave behind. And I remember looking at my friend who had lost her mom and looking at me who had lost my mom, and we're both just stunned, like, stunned silence. Uh, this is why the is this dead parent approved code exists because neither of us were expecting that, and both of us just started sobbing in the middle of the Aztec theater <laughs> because that is the true ghost. That is the ghost. It's what the dead leave behind. It isn't usually an actual ghost. It usually isn't a physical phantasm. It's all the things that were said and were never said. It's the weight of their legacy. It's the weight of what they truly were, because only in death can you truly take stock of a person. I have had the luxury of years to dissect my mom without her being here to defend herself. That is the ghost. The ghost is who my mom really was. It's not the shadow man that I see every night because of years of taking Benadryl. Should I'm like, does he have a hat? I'm just kidding. Should we talk about that? The hat man or the shadow man? Yeah, or the hat man. Because that's fucked. That's a real that's a real phenomena. Okay, so if you spend a lot of time on the internet like Tori and I do, uh, you'll discover that we spend a lot of time on the internet, Victoria. Uh, no, I was smiling because I do. Yeah, it's like Victoria, we spend a lot of time on the internet. Uh you know, there's this phenomenon that if you take Benadryl or like too much Benadryl, the thing is too much Benadryl, you I people either manifest spiders or like this like grinning hat man. And it's not that like it's one or two people that are saying that, it's hundreds of people who are saying that. That's scary to me. Because it'd be one thing if it was just like, oh, one or two people, because I've seen him. I've seen the hat man. And I've just been like, hey. But, like, more than one person has seen him. What the fuck, Benadryl? I'm gonna need you guys to make a comment, because, like, this is out of hand. Too many people are seeing the same thing. Uh, I mean, you also see it, it's fairly common with people who are very sleep-deprived. Yes. Um, but, I mean, like, sleep paralysis is a real freaking thing. I mean, we get the term haggard from hag-ridden, because people thought that there was an old hag that would sit on them and that they could see her, like, basically choking the life out of them. Mood. Ah, uh, word, word usage. Weird. Mood. Uh, so, yeah, like, relatives are shitty and they can be overwhelming. And sometimes the real ghost is simply those that have left us behind. So in this book, we have a lot of that with, um, with Eleanor, who, or not, yeah, Eleanor, who's, literally just has lost her mom recently so she's still haunted by the conversations with her mom and then we also have luke who 
has done everything in his power to avoid Hill House, everything mm -hmm. in his power to avoid the history of the house and like his family. Mm -hmm. And so he is now experiencing all these things that are, you know, avoiding things that he's avoided, but now he can't get away from, which is, you know, a lot of trauma and like cyclical family trauma and things like that things that you're like i don't have any problems with that and then you start analyzing your life and you're like i have so many problems with that yeah it's it's so weird when you have these conversations and you know tori and i've talked about this ad nauseum i talked about this with my other friends that like the really really scary thing about trauma and having like a not great past is how quickly we normalize things and like how much of your therapy then becomes acknowledging how much of this isn't normal. Like so much of my early therapy from the last like couple of years has just been, oh, hey, so that thing that happened to you when you were a child, that was not okay. And we need to acknowledge that because especially when you're a kid, you just run with the punches. That's all you can do. You know, and if crazy is your normal, well, then that's your normal. And everyone else is kind of crazy. Like, oh, you didn't have a family member chase you through the house with the butcher knife on Christmas? That wasn't a part of your Christmas tradition? Is attempted murder? <laughs> but, like, when that's your reality, you know, you, you, you say that, like, it's nothing. And then you have all your friends who are like, oh, no. I had a conversation with somebody when I was, like, 15, I think they were in their 20s and we were going on and I was like talking about stuff and he just stops and he goes are you okay and I went I've never been okay in my life what and he's like that's a lot to deal with are you okay and I was like I I think so <laughs> I, was that like, is, I thought that was normal that is such oh my god yeah same like that's been me most of my life is people who are just like after my mom died it was like you are so strong. I don't know how you do it. And I'm just like shrugs. <laughs> You're like, like, I stopped making I serotonin like a year ago. I thought, oh, by the time mom died, I stopped making my own serotonin easily a decade ago. Uh, but yeah, like it was, it's so weird because people are like, oh my God, you know, you're so calm. And like in the, in the inside of my brain, my favorite was like, especially like after mom died, was everyone was like, you were so strong. But like inside of my head was like, you know that gif of like the party parrot? It's just like a cockabow, like in rainbow, yeah. just bobbing. That was the inside of my brain. Like my, I was just on autopilot. I told one of my friends the other day, my problem is I refuse to acknowledge my feelings. I refuse to acknowledge my emotions when they come up, if they're inconvenient. So I sent two gifts and one of them was the Loki. Yes, very sad anyway, which my friend and I send to each other all the time. And then the other one is that guy from It's Always Sunny throwing the plate. Mm -hmm. And my friend's like, oh, my God, that's that's very accurate for you. Just because I go, oh, no, this person is suffering more. I can't deal with my emotions right now. And no, absolutely. I'm, I'm terrible at that. That it's like, and Tori's had to counsel me recently because I'm going through a shitty breakup where I'm just like, hello, do you have any spoons? I, I've run out. I've run out years ago. Uh do you want to talk about supernatural causes versus health concerns? Yes. So this is even something that uh, the Catholic Church does actually a pretty good job of, which I'm giving your people credit. Um, 
we have seen a lot of increases in people thinking that they're possessed, especially folks who were staying home during COVID before that. Mm -hmm. The world is a really stressful place. It aggravates mental illnesses. It can mm -hmm. help lead to issues where your high stress levels can cause issues with your uh, dopamine and serotonin receptors, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. Your body chemistry can go off for no fucking reason. It's just mm -hmm. life. So mm -hmm. there's been a really big uptick of people being like, I'm possessed, I need to have an exorcism. And the Catholic Church actually will verify first that it's not an active mental health issue before they go into yeah. anything like that. Well, um, and I don't mean to cut you off, but like that's something that I've always appreciated about the Catholic Church is that like people always like, oh, it's Catholics who are exorcism crazy. Catholics are the last ones to send an exorcist. Catholics, there's only like a handful of reported actual exorcisms per diocese. Catholics are the last to assume you need an exorcism. Everyone always says it's the Catholics. It's not. I'm sorry. I'm kicking that that's, hand to the Protestants. That's a, a whole media thing. That's a whole yeah. media thing. That's satanic panic shit. Yeah, that is satanic panic shit. I kick that can to the Protestants. It is not the Catholics who are just sending out priests to go You're do exorcisms. You're not yeah. wrong. Like that is all, that is <laughs> Protestant nonsense. Like uh, there was a seven deadly sins series that history channel did. And it was great except for the fact where they pulled in this like hoaxer exorcist guy and he's Anabaptist. He's evangelical. Like he's not Catholic. It is not. No, I ex I accept no Catholic slander about exorcisms. Um, I'm not given any. <laughs> it was one of the few times that BuzzFeed Unsolved actually kind of made me upset is when they call it like this priest and it's like, but like they don't do any of the things that they're supposed to do because he's the one who's like, yeah, actual exorcisms are rare. We don't really do these things. It's really not that special because he was like, oh, the, the Vatican's exorcist master. It's like, what? No. No, stop sensationalizing exorcism. Uh, Mother Teresa had an exorcism for Christ's sake. I mean, she was a bad person, but like. I was like, I'm keeping my mouth shut. Keep my mouth shut. I've been going through a crisis of faith. And what that crisis of faith means that I have a lot of horrible angst about being Roman Catholic. But I have sought immense comfort in shriveled old white men saying prayers in Latin for three hours. But yeah, so like the church will verify if it's mental illness or not. Um, here's the thing. A lot of religions to this day like tying physical illness and physical deformity to uh, unholiness. And that's which dangerous. But yeah, which is bull dangerous bullshit. It's dangerous bullshit. Um, and if you want to quote the Bible on this, somebody asked Jesus at one point in time what sin that this blind man had committed, and he's like, none, none. like none, <laughs> zero, none. His he's eyes just, just blind, bro. Yeah, his, like his eyes just said no. Like that was no one's fault. Uh, if you'd like to curse God, however, if you do have a physical deformity or illness, I cannot tell you what to do but I will not stop you. Um, so here's the thing. Having illness sucks. It sucks. I'm chronically ill. Tori's chronically ill. It sucks. It's, it's hard. Um, 
I'm glad that my family never went like the exorcism route with me because they probably could have. They probably could have like found a way to do it. But yeah, don't do that to people. Don't just like randomly be like, there's a demon in them. Also, don't do that to your child if they come out as trans or gay. None of our listeners are going to do that. This is just a societal note or for like the one straggler who's lost, I guess. The one straggler who this is their first episode and they're just like. I was going to be like Chris Hansen, take a seat. Yeah. Oh my God. I've been watching so much to catch a predator. That show was wild. They were that just like wild. And then the, the, the episode that ended it happened in Texas. That tracks. Oh, did you not know what happened? No. Okay. So. They were doing it in Rowlett, Texas, which is actually not too far from where I'm from. Uh, and they capture this, like, I think he's like a local district attorney. Like, he is like the district attorney for Rowlett, Texas. Oh. They cap- they get him trying to sleep with an underaged male. And he never goes to the sting house. And the police officer for Rowlett's like, no, we're still taking him in. Like, we have to make a big deal out of this. So they get all the cops. They do a SWAT thing. Chris Hansen's there. Um, but he's, like, mostly in the back. And the police execute a raid, and he shoots himself live, like, mic'd up, blows his brains out. And oh, his, his family sued saying that, like, you guys decided that you wanted to make a big deal out of this and you didn't have to do that. Uh, And it's the episode that ended To Catch a Predator because this guy, like, mic'd up, you can hear it, blew his brains out on live television. You didn't see anything, thank God, but, like, there's body cam footage and everything, and that was the episode that ruined To Catch a Predator because it's like, oh, fuck. Because, yeah, like, the family sued NBC... The family sued the local police station. The family sued everyone because it's like you didn't have to embarrass him. Okay, well he was trying to meet with an underage boy, so <laughs> he was trying to meet with a fourteen-year-old boy. Embarrass him, but like mm. the sheriff did intentionally say, "No, we're going in guns a blazing" because like we have to, we have to set a precedence that this isn't right, that we aren't going to accept this. So I mean, technically they're right. They did not have to do what they did. But the family's like, oh, they embarrass him. They had to embarrass him. Your man shouldn't have been texting underage boys. That's actually, we had a guy out here in San Antonio, Mark Benavides, who's in prison for 80 years because he used to have underage clients who were like, I can't afford to hire a defense attorney. And he's like, that's okay. You can have sex with me or you can have sex on camera for my friend who's making porn. Mm-hmm. And he got uh, caught. So, yeah. That was to catch a predator. Uh, but yeah, so it's easy to try to pin things that are physically wrong with people on God or on Satan. Um, that is actually a medieval thing. Often that um, the area that is afflicted is the area that has offended either in a previous life or something like that. That's my favorite medieval rationalization is that if you're blind uh, in a past life, you committed a sin of sight. Didn't the Romans have something similar to this too about like if you had certain deformities like it you would displease the gods or something? So the Romans 
Christians did, but it was a vanity thing rather than a piety thing. Okay. The Romans really just liked everything to be nice. They stole all of their culture from the Greeks and the Etruscans, but they added an extra le level of uh, vanity. Like, the Romans were just very superficial. They I was just say, like, were they bougie Greeks? They were bougie Greeks. They were like, do you know, like, uh, like Catalina wine moms? Yes. Where, like, they all have, like, the one, like, Santorini room, and then everything is just, like, vines and gr fake grapes. And, like, oh, my God, all, like, the Tuscan tile, all the fucking gross-ass tile. Everyone's, everyone's kitchen has an island. They've never fucking used the island. Like, that's what the Romans were. They just stole all this stuff from the Etruscans and the Greeks and were like, we can make this better. And just like threw some fake grape leaves on it. I'm like queer eye for the Rome guy. Like literally, like that was all they did. It was um, like the, the Greeks are dying and they're just like, you know, it would improve the scene. What if, and hear me out, we make it gold. Yeah, and it's just it's just some Greek guy's house, but now it's gold. <laughs> it's, just, it's just some Greek guy's I just guy's realized house. no one could see me doing my Vanna White hand gestures. So no one can see us doing anything. That's the best part. Uh, oh my god, my first fan died. Oh no. I get so fucking hot sometimes, but I have multiple fans. I was like, yeah, you are. Oh, thank you. I have multiple fans, so I don't get sweaty. Uh, so no, just to no one likes finish that. up the point, uh, we're not necessarily saying one way or the other whether Eleanor has a mental illness. Uh, no, that is not. Go either way. No, that is not our place. Neither of us uh, were there. But also, don't start labeling that on people. St stop it. Uh, okay, you want to talk about some implied lesbianism? Yeah, so... At this point in time when the book was written, I believe, I, I'm like, I wrote it in my notes. Um, it was published in 1959. Um, lesbianism was considered to be a mental illness. Surprise! Um, which, until recently, it was still an illness listed in the DSM. Mm -hmm. um, finally, that's been removed. Thanks, World Health Organization. Um, so, a lot of, of this is, is basically implies that Theodora is unclean and wild and crazy and like so things are attracted to her because she's unnatural and that's like a lot of, of in the book like what they imply like she has a very close roommate that they fought and so then she she fled to go to Hill House and it's like oh they've made up at the end the way that she's really really close to Eleanor and just all the little things that that go on through this book are basically mm -hmm. like, oh, look at her. She's she's unnatural. She's doing this this thing. And sorry, there's a thing and my neighbors are dogs are now losing their damn mind. Um our truck, there we go. So it's all kind of tying into, well, you know, she it, Eleanor is is unnatural because of of her, you know, her upbringing and her mind. And Theodora is unnatural because of her proclivities. And, you know, Luke is a, a scoundrel. Like, basically everyone in this book is supposed to be given, like, a trait that's not ideal. Um, and at that point in time, when this was written, 
that was not ideal, um, mm -hmm. especially in the United States. Yes. Arguably, uh, depending on what state you're in, that is still not ideal. I was like, we live in South Texas. <laughs> Yay. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Nah. So I had a friend who just moved to Austin and now she likes to badmouth San Antonio, like we're the backwardest, most backwards place. And I'm oh, gonna we're say not to Yeah, like I'm sorry. I don't even like San Antonio that much. I'm still a Dallas bitch, but like she she moved up the highway a piece and now San Antonio is this backwards hick town. Mm, I'm sorry. We're we're doing pretty okay for like one of the largest cities in the nation. Like we're doing pretty okay. We're not great because Abbott's still a fucking bitch. Oh, we got a postcard in the mail today, like urging Mark to vote for Greg Abbott. And I look at it and I'm like, postcard, are you lost? Yeah, are you lost? Do you know whose house this is? Uh, also, reminder. Yeah. Also, uh, reminder: Texans early voting starts on Monday. I'm so excited. I'm going to go get it done. I get to go right before I flee the country. <laughs> yes. I basically, okay, so I get to early vote on Monday. I don't get back until like the third. I get to vote and then fuck y'all. Bye. Peace out. Peace out. Beto, don't fucking text me. You've had my vote. You've had my vote. You had my vote the first time you fucked it up. You had my vote the first time you shat the bed and didn't know what to say. So we have a book club at my day job. And right now we're reading a book called Fool Me Once. And it's a romance novel because, of course, it is. But during it, there's this girl is like, they're trying to turn Texas blue. And I'm reading this book going, yeah, that would never happen. Yeah, that would never happen. That's probably never going to happen. Mm -hmm. That'll that the that no, they would never change the Alamo room. Like certain things that I'm just like, maybe in like 15 years that will happen. But we're still dealing with some people who have a lot of issues. So here's my thing with Texas, and I think that this is the thing with a lot of states, and I know this is a sidebar, don't get mad at me. Uh I think so much of it is just misinformation. And I think that's the sad part is that so much of like the fear around like trans people is stopped by having a conversation with one trans person. Mm -hmm. So much of this stuff about, you know, gender non-binary people is stopped by having a conversation with someone who's non-binary. So much about marijuana legalization is stopped by talking to someone who like does marijuana and not like a stock caricature of someone who does marijuana, but, like someone who actually uses marijuana. Like, it's just, it's frustrating because it'd be one thing if any of it was right. Because at least, you know, when I was younger and I saw the more conservative views of my peers, I could understand why they felt that way. I could understand why someone would be more fiscally conservative than I was. I could understand why someone was more pro-Iraq than I was. Now we're just on hopes and dreams and lies. And that I cannot abide by. Because you're just wrong. And it's on both sides, like, to be it real, is. but there's yeah a lot of just blatant misinformation. Yes. Like people knowing that they're lying, but still saying it anyway so they can be on TV. Right. Alex also, Jones. Uh, what? Let's say, let's say Alex Jones. I hope that billion is bitter. I just, ugh, I'm just so excited. 
Anyways, uh, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about overall ghost and haunting symbolism. Uh, what's fascinating is that every almost every culture has a ghost or an afterlife. Not all of them, but almost all of them. Uh, what's fascinating about certain cultures is their opinions on the afterlife typically uh, depend on how much they value actual life. So like the ancient Egyptians loved living, so they kind of hated dying which is why they spent so much of their time preparing for dying. The Romans, same, really didn't care about that dying, but they cared a lot about living. So they didn't really do a lot of prep for the dying, but when they did, they had some rituals and they focused on it. Uh, countries that are more patrilineal and have more ancestor worship tend to obviously, of course, take care of their ancestors a little bit more. There's some fantastic, almost like cult-like behavior in South America where mummies are brought inside the house and mummies have dinner with the regular family. They vibe, they hang out. Uh, famously, the Chinchuro people did that of South America uh, near the Atacama Desert. And it turns out that the Chinchuro started uh, mummifying thousands of years before the Egyptians did. And in a response to a natural disaster, they had an alarming rate of miscarriage and um, stillborn children, which was likely caused by a high amount of lead in their local water source. Oh. So they started doing mummification very, very early, likely as a way to respond to the grief of so many dead children. These are things Amanda I, knows. I was like, I just knew about the people in Thailand who, I think it's Thailand, who bring their their family in and you know change their clothing one and do yeah, that sort of thing. With them. I think that's so cool, though. I think like, there's so much of me that thinks that that stuff is cool, but also, please leave me alone. Please, I want to be in the tightest vault and never disturbed again. I don't, I'm so tired already. Please do not, do not turn me over. Don't, don't check to make sure I'm still there. If I'm going on adventures, I'm going on adventures. Let me go on my way. <laughs> just leave me in my vault. I'm just going to hang out in my vault. Um, but yeah, like there's some really, really fascinating cultural studies around that everyone has an afterlife typically and everyone has ghosts. Uh, typically ghosts come about because we're very, very afraid of what happens after we die. Like all of humanity is very afraid of what happens after we die. Um, it is an existential threat that plagues most people to the point of death fear and death anxiety, which is why Americans don't plan their own funerals. There are a yep. lot of families who have no idea what to do when someone dies because no one thinks that they're going to die. That's accurate. There, um, there's not a whole lot of pre-planning. There's not a whole lot of uh, conversations around whether or not someone you want somebody to attempt to resuscitate you. No. Um, my mom is hilarious, though. She goes, just bury me in a sleeping bag in my pajamas. She goes, I want to be comfortable. But um, does she have it in writing? Yes. Okay. Just kidding. She doesn't have that part in writing. She has a, she has a will, though. Um, my 
grandma was hilarious because there was a TV show on and it was about embalming. And she looked at my mom when she was alive and she turned off the TV and she goes, I want to be surprised. And did, that, I tell you, did I tell you about my aunt's uh, fear about being an organ donor? Oh, uh, is it like worried that they'll kill her or? Yes. Yes. My aunties were like, because I said that I'm an organ donor, like, and I've said like, oh yeah, I've been writing out my will since I was 12, which is only slightly macabre. Um, but, you know, I said, yeah, we I'm organ donor. both have depression. <laughs> okay, listen. My mom took me to my gravesite when I was like 11 years old because she bought hers and mine at the same time she bought my dad's. So my mom just brings us over to a plot of land. It's like, this is where we'll go when we die. So I've seen my own grave. <laughs> so my step-grandmother, when she was alive, um, when my, my grandpa Johnny passed away, he was he was buried out in Texas. And they went there and their headstone was there with both of their pictures and both of their names and date of birth. And so there's a picture of her standing next to the grave. And she's like, like they, this is where I'm going to go. And when she passed away, she was actually cremated. And then we buried her cremains next to Johnny. But um, it's just was hilarious to be like at the cemetery and be like, Grandma knows where she's going. But, uh, so to the point, here's the cool thing about ghosts. Also, whether a culture has a benevolent or malevolent ghost culture usually is shockingly influenced by religious guilt. A lot of cultures did not have malevolent ghost culture until fairly recently and usually because of religious guilt, typically from Catholics and Christians. Um, that is not true everywhere. Uh, China, of course, does have its hungry ghost, but that's more of a vampire than a ghost. But most cultures that now have some kind of malevolent ghost creature, I'm thinking like the Aswang in the Philippines and in Thailand. I'm thinking of the Capre. I'm thinking of some of the ghosts and spirits that are around to call and in Fiji. I'm thinking of the uh, zombies in Guam. I think those are the Feng, the, no, the Tautamona, the Tautamona. Um, do not ask why I know these things. I just do. A lot of those are the product of colonialism. And I will say there's something similar in Iceland. So if you look at, um, pagan beliefs from like Norway and stuff like that, you know, warriors went to Valhalla or, Ful or mm -hmm. Fulfang or you went to hell and that was not a scary, well, Helheim, it was not a scary thing. It was, mm -hmm. unless you were a complete jackass then that was a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But when you look at a lot of the ghost stories in Iceland after 1100, then all of a sudden you have these ghosts that like are children with no feet who are left to die outside and chase after travelers. Like mm -hmm. you have this extreme level of guilt of, you know, we didn't care for, for the, those in need. And now, you know, look, they're coming to haunt us and destroy us. Yeah. A lot of that. I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of that's Christianity because we have basically a bunch of malevolent ghosts. That's all the saints are. Just hiding out, making people feel shitty for having butt sex. 
best part of this episode is neither of us are drinking. <laughs> this is just us. <laughs> so. <laughs> How much are you going to miss me when I'm gone for a week? <laughs> so freaking much you don't even know. <laughs> uh, so hauntings go hand in hand in that. Again, a lot of that. I mean, again, there's a lot of cultures that do have like a proto ghost. But they ain't really haunting houses. There is no ancient Roman ghost that's just like, nice villa. Like, they're hunting people down. Uh, the the earliest ones that I can think of are like reasons why we have corpse doors, like Draugr's. But and I, I do love a corpse door. I love corpse doors so much. Uh, you like look for them when we go where we go places. My favorite one is in Goliad. There is a corpse mm -hmm. door at the church in Goliad, Texas, and I got so excited about there being a corpse door. Because you sent me a picture, I think. I love it so much. Also, we got to see the uh, Come and Take It canon, and it is very small. It's tiny. Like, like, everyone makes the Come and Take It canon such a big deal. It is so small. It, this, this, is, this is American history in a nutshell. Is this thing that you think is mythical. It's tiny. But my favorite thing about Texan history is that our monument at San Jacinto is taller than the Washington Monument. Yeah, that seems like a Texas thing. We are the only state that can fly our flag at the same height as the U.S. flag. Every other flag has to fly underneath it. Texas is... Texas is a whole other thing. But... So hauntings... There's a lot of symbolism there. It's usually, you know, unfinished business. It's an unfinished business, honestly, on both sides. That's the thing. Hauntings are like bird watching. It goes both ways. Remember, bird watching goes both ways. But usually the thing with hauntings and with ghosts, so much communication with ghosts is initiated by the living. Uh, one of the things that I hate the most in a lot of like modern horror movies and like ghost adventures and shit are people who are provoking ghosts and then are shocked when the ghosts knock over a table. Yeah, ghost adventures just went to the Los Feliz murder mansion. I only know this because I was scrolling through Twitter, like trying to get stuff for the my website, and I look up and I go, "What the? What? No." No! Like, super, super disrespectful in California history. Super disrespectful. But then again, this is the man who bought a house that was infested with black mold and told everyone it was possessed by demons. He played with the skull of a dead slave in someone's basement. Oh, his his museum is terrible. It's He's terrible. not a good person. He's not a good person. And I used to like that show. I did too, like 10 years ago. Oh, I'd say it's longer than 10 years. Uh, but like, yeah, he's not a good person. But like, that's one thing that about a lot of ghost stuff that people don't acknowledge is how much of it is initiated by the living. A majority of it is the living seeking answers. It is not always the ghosts who are merely restless. Most of the time, it's, you know, those 
you know, those Fox sisters just out there screaming at the afterlife. What I find fascinating too is with the Dudleys as well. The Dudleys have come to this like happy medium. They're employed. They go in, they clean the house, they do what needs to be done, and then they peace the fuck out. They're like, y'all do you, we do us, we have no problems. And John Montague like comes in and he's like, let's wake up some ghosts. No. You want me to tell you about the Sagittarius that is Shirley Jackson? You know what? I think it's about that time. It's nine o'clock. Let's do it. <laughs> so Jer Shirley Jackson was born December 15th, 1916. This is she book, dead? Uh, she's very dead. Oh. Um, <laughs> the Haunting of Hill House was actually dedicated to Leonard Brown, her English teacher at Syracuse University. Her prose is intentionally minimal. Like it's minimalistic or if you, that's what you want to call it. Um, she delighted in taking things that seemed very Victorian in theme and just making them super simple. It's a little bit like if you were combining like Gothic novels, but written by Hemingway, like that kind of thing. Um, she met her husband, Stanley Edgar Hyman, when she was at Syracuse University. They were both working on a literary magazine at the school. Mm -hmm. um, he was Jewish. Her family did not like that. Um, this was as there's always anti-Semitism in the U.S., but this was particularly heightened where they were from. Um, so she ended up marrying him secretly and then didn't tell her family until after it was done. And they moved to New York uh, and worked for The New Yorker. She mm -hmm. actually had her short story, The Lottery, published by The New Yorker, and it's considered to be the like most disturbing thing that's ever been published in The New Yorker. Um, the Lottery is amazing. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It will make you question a lot of um, our behaviors as an American society. That's a whole other thing. Um, they moved to Vermont after their first kid was born. She had, like I was saying, a really difficult relationship with her mom. Her mom was raised upper class and um, her father actually was lower class, but he was from England. He had emigrated from England and ended up becoming the head of his company. So they kind of had that higher bar. Um, her mother continued to verbally abuse her for the rest of her life, you know, calling Shirley, basically telling her she was fat, all sorts of things. She was never happy with her daughter, and she often told her daughter that she was a disappointment. Um, mm. This was exacerbated by the fact that for a while there, Stanley wasn't making a whole lot of money. Um, he ended up becoming a professor. Um, so a lot of times they had to rely on money from her family to get by. So basically mm -hmm. she just kind of had to endure these verbal assaults. She couldn't just cut everything off. Um, this book is actually her fifth novel and it was published in 1959. She mm -hmm. said she decided to write Hill House after reading about a group of psychic researchers in the 19th century from mm -hmm. the Society of Psychic Research. Um, she said she wasn't inspired by the content. The content was kind of eh. Um, really dry, but she said she loved the idea of all these people coming together with these different motivations and different backgrounds and how they would have their opinions skewed by what they'd gone through. Mm -hmm. um, to help with her research, she read a ton of volumes of classic and traditional ghost stories. I'm going to say ghost stories as far as like more English um, and UK based kind of stuff and some of the American folklore versus something like where we were talking about in Asian countries, you're going to see a lot of differences. Um, 
So her inspiration for the house itself is really weird. This, um, she found a picture, she says, in a magazine in California, and it looked really haunted, this house. This may be her making something up. So I'm going to throw that out there. But she said her mom lived in California at the time, and she asked her mom to find out more details so that she could kind of get a better idea of how to illustrate this house. And her mom was like, oh, well, I've discovered that this home was actually designed by your great-great-grandfather. Her great-great-grandfather really was an architect in San Francisco, but there's there's not a whole lot of proof that that's true. So I'm going to throw that out there. It's a fun story. Um, yeah. She had four kids. Okay. Uh, they drove her insane. Uh, she Her husband was a professor. And he basically was like, hey, um, I'm going to leave all the child rearing and house stuff to you. And, uh, oh, but, you know, I know you really want to be a writer. So, I mean, you can write in your spare time if you want. So yeah. that 1950s, 60s, complete imbalance of power in the home. He mm -hmm. would go off to work and leave her there. Uh, they would throw really awkward parties at their house. Um, by all accounts, she was incredibly charming, very witty. But she also had anxiety and depression um and they ate away at her she developed issues with alcohol drugs overeating and was completely convinced that everyone in the town in vermont where they lived hated her um and she once had a spell of depression so bad she didn't leave the house for three months she was very interested in abnormal psychology as well as witchcraft and magic which we see like all throughout her writing um mm -hmm. And she ended up dying at the age of 45 from a heart attack in, it was 1965. So not too long after she published this book, she ended up passing away. And a lot of it, like, you kind of see her life and go, oh, shit. Um, there is actually a Shirley Jackson Award now for horror. Um, in 2007, her estate gave permission for the award, and it's, it's given to folks for... Um, honorary for horror and suspense writing. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I relate a lot to that. As Tori can probably attest, I've spent my week watching documentaries about celebrities that died horrible deaths and usually <laughs> Yeah, I, I heard a lot about Anna Nicole Smith this week, and I agree that was really unfair the way her death was treated. We treated Anna Nicole Smith so terribly. Really? Really? Like, she just, I mean, she was no saint, of course. And, like, I don't know. Here's my big thing. Um, I hate when we don't listen to people. And then we're, and then people are just, like, shocked when something happens. So, like, my big thing for that is Chris Benoit. For people that don't know me, I'm a wrestling fan. I've always been a wrestling fan. I've been a wrestling fan since I was a kid. And Chris Benoit uh, ended up doing this horrible thing where he murdered his wife and his son and then killed himself. Famous wrestler. It was this horrible thing. He lost his friend, Eddie Guerrero, like years before. And everything that happened to Chris is just red flag after red flag of, Hey, maybe we should help this guy. He would spend hours crying about Eddie Guerrero he would go to Eddie's house and like try to hug his clothes. Chris was a mess at Eddie's funeral. Uh, 
Chris Jericho tells this story where he, where Benoit is sobbing into his shirt and he soaks through his shirt crying. And no one thought that this man needed help. Everyone was like, Chris is going to be fine. But that's our culture too. Like Trevor Noah was talking about this earlier with Kanye, where we tend to do this thing where we're like, we're just going to back up and let you do your full like breakdown and not help in any way. And then if something tragic happens, we're just going to go, Oh, I wish they had told us or given us any indication. So I think Kanye is a little different. I did go through a very, very brief phase where I had a lot of sympathy for Kanye. That has diminished when he now is opening up a cult school where everyone has to praise his dead mother's name and they're wearing all black and all the parents have to sign NDAs. Oh, I'm not a fan at all. He he went off on about Jewish people. Like, I, I'm I mean, not, yeah, I'm obviously, not supporting obviously, yeah, this is bad too. But like, when you open up a cult school and the pair and the kids have to say your dead mom's name and they're all wearing black. Like I have a problem with your weird cult school, and then the and white. And he's lives admitted are... that he's not following his treatment plan. And yeah, he's so I'm going to go ahead and say that Kanye is a little that. different because this is someone. Mm-hmm. If if you had said that about Kanye like five ten years ago, I'd agree with you. When he was still receptive to help and stuff like that, he, when he said, "We don't make an athlete with a sprained ankle keep performing, but they expect me to keep performing with a sprained brain." Yes. That Kanye, I agree. This Kanye, mm -hmm. but like, so I don't want to just chalk it up to it's our culture. I think also we just don't know what to do with people that are like that. And like, even people who are mentally ill to each other, like I'm still like, I mean, I had to open up a lot to Tori. I had to rely a lot on Tori this week because I've not been well. And like, even so much of me doing that is like, oh, I feel terrible. I shouldn't be don't, bothering. I'm like, agree. don't feel bad about exactly. talking to me. I just felt bad because I couldn't always respond immediately. Right. I was like, so, wait, please don't think I'm ignoring you. Like, that's not cultural. Like, that's me. That's, it's up to but us as well. Because American healthcare is so terrible that we don't have the resources that we need for things like mental illness or chronic illness. And we have doctors admitting that they're moving out patients who have disabilities because it takes too much time and paperwork. That is correct. But um, so, yeah, I spent my week watching a lot of shows about celebrities who died uh, horrible deaths and were frankly too young. Um, I realized that I'm too black for Janis Joplin. I, I'm too black for Janis Joplin. There's a perfectly good Nina Simone that you all could listen to. <laughs> I, have, I have a perfectly good Nina Simone for you. Um. And I've also been eating a lot of honey butter croissants. Honey butter. What did you say to me the other day? Do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior honey butter, yeah. butter croissants? Would you like to talk about my new Lord and Savior honey butter croissants from Cheddar's? <laughs> Cheddar's, if you're listening, I would happily accept a sponsorship. Please send me a PR package of honey butter croissants. That I mean, that's a- all they'd have to do is just drop off like 15 croissants at your house. I mean, firstly, I'd eat myself into a coma. Firstly, secondly, we, we have had conversations of how many blank songs from this band do I have to or do I have to listen to before it's a cry to help for help? And also yeah. how many honey chicken or not honey chicken, honey butter biscuits or croissants do I have to eat before it's a cry for help? Yeah, like, because you, all, you, you know, sorry, those numbers are just arbitrary. It's just I'm pulling. But there's, them a lot, but 
there's a line. There's always a line that separates man from beast. <laughs> and it's I like that Doctor Who thing that is yeah. for a lot depends. Exactly. Like I, there's always a line that separates man from beast, and I don't want to cross into beast territory. And I feel dangerously close to beast territory because I've eaten a shocking amount of honey butter croissant. <laughs> There is an amazing book, and I don't know if it's out yet. I'm reading the I'm like the screener. I'm reading the art copy right now, but it's the called screener. If Nietzsche Was a, uh, a Narwhal. And it's talking about the concept of intelligence um, and when it becomes destructive for humanity and how we can't really truly measure intelligence because we don't know what it is. You and so all of our it. measuring tools are arbitrary. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, and I found out all about how like Nietzsche actually died. And I'm like, well, now I feel like a complete dick. Not to mention this fact that his sister was a fucking Nazi. So yes, she was. ended up like changing a lot of what he wrote, writing yes. her own things and putting them in there and then making him the poster boy for the Nazis when he was like, I think anti-Semitism is stupid. Okay, but he thought anti-Semitism was stupid not because he cared about Jewish people. But oh no, he just thought it was like, stupid. Yeah, okay. Like I'm not I'm not gonna let you simp for Nietzsche. Like oh, he I'm did, not simping for him. Yeah, he like, didn't dislike so, anti-Semitism because he cared about the Jewish plight. He just didn't no, like it didn't. because it didn't morally or like logically make sense. Uh okay. okay. So we're gonna wrap this up because it's nine o'clock and uh I'm tired. Tori, we have some resources. We have a lot of resources. I'm just going to post them. One of the best resources I can give you to read if you want to find out more about Shirley Jackson is a book called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Franklin Ruth. It is incredibly detailed. I've listened to the audiobook before. Uh, you will both feel terrible for Shirley Jackson and also be irritated by her. Just throwing it out there. She was a real person and behaved as such me listening to all these documentaries about dead celebrities it's like why did you make this decision why stop doing cocaine has been the theme of this this week's episode me. stop doing cocaine oh my god me me staring at these documentaries of celebrities it's just everyone just we need to put we need to put an x on cocaine you guys are doing way too much cocaine can we got can we do less cocaine guys uh, I've never done cocaine. I know you haven't, but like, there's just all of these stories involve like a horrifying amount of drugs. Okay, so I have had family members talk about their weddings in the '70s where there were yes. cocaine tables, like tables with piles of cocaine. That just sounds so unsanitary, right? It sounds horrible. <laughs> Post COVID okay. world, we're afraid to share cake in the break room, like. Yeah, but y'all okay. Anyways, uh, did you have to read this in school? I did not. No. So we read the lottery in our AP English class and okay. talked a little bit about Shirley Jackson and her life, mm -hmm. and that was where I found out about Hill House. And uh, for a long time, I was like, "Is it like the Vincent Price?" No, 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 no. Different, different stories, friends. Um, this gets adapted in weird ways, and it gets thrown into pop culture mm -hmm. um but it's one of those things where it's like if you haven't read it and then you read it you're like oh that that was it oh, okay 
I honestly think um, we always we've always lived in the castle is a better book. Um, mm -hmm. And the lottery is I, I feel like that's required reading. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, all right. So I'm going to be gone for a week. But when we come back in November, Baron Von Cheeseplate has managed to buy his way onto the show. Yeah. Is it buying his way onto the show or is it me going, hey, when is he coming back? And you going, stop. <laughs> it's both. Because I have I have in both ears a Baron Von Cheeseplate who's like, hey, I want to be back on the show. River! Cat sighting. Outsiding. Uh, and then I have Tori like, hey, when's Baron, when's Baron Von Cheesley coming back? I'm like, okay. Uh, so he wants to read uh, Neuromancer by William Gibson. Oh. Is River's giving her commentary? I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I was telling Tori about my bad breakup and she just sent me a picture of her, of, of her cat. And it was just like, yes, perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Sometimes I don't have words, but I do have pictures of the cat. Hey, that's doing better than most. Uh, so we're going to read Neuromancer for Baron Von Cheeseplate. That will be in November during our anniversary. Aww. We have been doing this for years. Too, I would say too long sometimes. And then other times I'm like, wait, what? It hasn't been that long. We just did Watership Down. We've been doing this for so long. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I will be out of the country in two or three days. So y'all be safe out there. Texans, be sure to early vote. I will know if you don't. Uh, the world is still crazy out there, but that doesn't mean that you should let your light be dimmed by any means. Stay safe. Go read a book.